Alrighty, so I uh, hope you guys are having fun being a part of Cedar Mill. I think in my 12 years here, this is probably uh, one of the most exciting seasons for me personally, just seeing the way that God is at work in our church and uh, raising people who are uh, just living radically for God and stepping up. I just feel like we are on, on the edge of God doing something really momentous among us. And Pastor Dave shared with you last week uh, kind of a challenge message to be all in here, to be all in as a disciple of Christ with what God is doing among us at, at our church. And uh, we're preparing to make some big changes with our facility to kind of better position ourselves for our community, to be able to reach out uh, to people with the gospel and uh, better grow disciples of Christ here. And so we, we're excited uh, for the years of ministry ahead and we feel like God is working and, and moving. And um, the, the reality is when we hear a challenging message to kind of be all in uh, with what God wants us to be and do, um, first of all, the, the primary responsibility is on each one of us to go to the Lord and say, okay, what does that look like for me? What are you calling me to be and do and give and serve and um, and the reality is there's two kinds of ways to relate to this, this sort of message. There's two kinds of ways you can relate to that kind of challenge to be all in to what God's doing in your community. And, and uh, the first way is you can hear Pastor Dave's message from last week. And if you haven't, go ahead and podcast that. But if uh, you can hear it and go, okay, great, that's my duty. This is the right, good thing to do as a Christ follower. And it's kind of an external obligation. Maybe it's a it's positive peer pressure, which is always a good thing, usually. Like, we need some other people being like, do the right thing, dude. But we, it can just be a duty. On the other hand, you can hear it and go, this is a calling. This is something God's talking to my heart about. This is something that I feel deeply about because God's, God's talking to me about this. Now, on one hand, duty without calling is just moralism. It's just uh, be good, do the right things, and then God kind of owes you. Now, on the other hand, calling without any duty attached to it is really just emotionalism or sentimentality. And I feel some good stuff, but then I don't live differently. And, and so what we're doing is we're calling us as a church to, to both hear God's call and respond to the duty that comes out of an identity in Christ and a calling of God to be his church in the world and, and what that looks like. Now, this morning I want to talk to you about some of the roadblocks, one of the key ways being kind of all into what God's doing in your midst gets thwarted, uh, kind of derails us from having a life kind of lived out of a sense of calling. And uh, this sort of all-in kind of faith is hard to sustain if you don't have a strong sense of God and his presence in your life. If you don't have a strong sense of him being real, talking to you, and actually drawing you into something uh, transformative and different, then it's easy to slide into mere kind of moralism. And, uh, and in fact, right now, we're right in the middle of summer in beautiful Oregon, and it's gorgeous, and uh, you know, we got to spend all day outside enjoying creation and the city, and it was really beautiful. But um, this is also the time of year when everything's kind of heating up, but sometimes our relationship with God just cools right down. Have you ever noticed that? That like by the time your grass starts to wither and die and dry up, or at least if you're cheap, like me, it does, it turns brown. Uh, and then... 
And then that's kind of symbolic of some other things that are going on maybe in your heart where you realize I'm kind of dry spiritually. Like, gosh, I'm so busy all during the year and now it's kind of summertime and I'm just distracted from God and I'm kind of having fun, but I haven't really connected in with Jesus for a while. And, and so if we're honest, it's really hard to feel inspired about being all into what God's doing in the church when we're really feeling disconnected from the head of the church, Christ. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. It's what do we do when we lose a sense of God being present to us, when we start to feel far from God? How do we handle that? How do we think about that biblically? And and maybe you felt like this before. You felt like, where's God in my life? Like, where did he go? Why don't I feel like he's there uh, or like he's for me anymore? So we're going to turn to Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. I'm actually going to read both of these psalms to you. Um, And uh, I know it's a lot of text, but I just want to encourage you to kind of dial in and hear what God has to say from his scriptures this morning that speak to this question. Psalm 42 and 43. They're really one psalm. They're tied together by this repeated kind of uh, um, stanza. And we don't really know why they got pulled apart into two psalms, but it's one one poem. It's... um, Psalm 42, 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From a deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. This is God's word to us. And, 
And there are, there are two kinds of disciplines that deal kind of with our own physical health and fitness. One of them is, you know, relates to trainers who help you make progress in your physical fitness. Now, I am obviously not super into trainers and making progress, but there are also doctors, right? And these are the guys who help you on the defensive. They help you get back on track. They help you get healthy. And it's the same way with, spirit, with spiritual things, too. There are disciplines that help us make progress, advance and, and grow. And there are also some defensive disciplines, some, some ways of treating problems and difficulties in our own hearts. And today we're going to look at one of the defensive realities, a, a way of dealing with a condition. And it's a condition, by the way, that will come on you at any point if you are on any kind of spiritual journey at all. Uh, and if you don't learn how to identify it and deal with it, it will take you out. And so today we're going to look at three things um, from Psalm 42 and 43 uh, it's the condition, the causes, and the cures. And without them, we won't become skilled at dealing with the condition. We'll be taken out. Now, I know they all start with C. It's cute, and it makes me feel good inside. So, um, First thing is the condition. Starting in verse 1, what's the condition? Verse 1 tells us with a metaphor what the condition is, and verse 2 explains it. Look at this with me. As the deer pants for water... Um, and he's talking about my soul's thirsting for God. Now, here's the reality. We sing this song, and it sounds really sweet. And you kind of imagine this meadow and a beautiful deer. And, uh, you know, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. It's just, it sounds really nice. But the picture, and I'm going to ruin the song for you, the picture of a deer panting for water is a picture of a deer who is fatigued, who's dying, literally, of thirst. See, deer aren't dumb. I, I don't know about you, but if, I've seen a lot of deer up here in the Northwest. I've never seen one about to keel over panting for water, right? Because deer know not to wait to drink water until they're like panting, right? They, they get water and they're familiar with their water spots. And, and so what this is, is it's a picture of a deer who is literally dying of thirst, who's been looking for water. It goes to its usual riverbed that it gets water from in the heat of the day, but instead of finding water, it finds a dry riverbed. And the psalmist is saying, I'm like that deer and God is like the dry riverbed. I'm looking for God in all the usual places and he's not there. He's, he's not where I expect him to be. Not that I don't believe that God exists or that he's, I don't believe he's present in all places, but I don't experience his presence. This isn't a, a propositional condition where I have a problem with an intellectual aspect of God. This is an existential condition where I don't feel like God's real. Now, verse 2 says, my soul thirsts for God. Again, it's not that I don't believe in God. It's that I, I can't sense God as a living God. That I lack a sense of God being there. That I'm dealing with Him and He with me. Notice this line, when shall I come and appear before God? It's literally, when shall I see the face of God? When, when shall I be able to relate to Him? See, he's, he, the author has lost a relational connection with God and His presence. There's no more sense of taste, sight, uh, feel, or sound of God on His own soul. So what, is, what does that mean? It means essentially this, that the thoughts that used to comfort me and, and, and really kind of resonate with me about God don't work anymore. That there's this, they don't yield sweetness and satisfaction anymore. In other words, I've lost the reality of God, the sense of God on my soul. And so this condition that the psalmist is describing is a condition of spiritual dryness or spiritual deadness or darkness in spite of his beliefs. 
Now, this is very important for us. This psalm is classified as one of the lament psalms. There's a whole bunch of psalms in this category that are um, songs where the author is lamenting his reality and his situation, that there's a problem, and he's crying out, and he's saying, this is messed up. And a lot of the times, the lament psalms are connected to guilt. Like, my bones are wasting away within me because of my iniquity, because of my sins, right? And it's like, until I confessed my sin, it was like I was just wasting away, right? And so this is normally tied to lament. But in this psalm, there is no sense of guilt. The author has a deep spiritual drought, but he hasn't done anything wrong. There's no confession. There's no sense of, I'm dried up because I have rebelled against God Most High. This is missing, okay? It's just a dr- it's like a drought in the land that's come upon him. And culturally, as Americans, we have a very difficult time with this, right? We See, as American people, we, we like formulas to work. We want to know that if I do my job and if I work hard, I'll get the reward and everything will work according to plan. And it doesn't work that way in our relationship with God. You see, like... Uh, we want to assign blame somewhere when something goes wrong. And obviously, I've missed something on my Christian to-do list if I feel like this. We can't handle it when something goes wrong, so we have to assign blame somewhere. I think this is actually one of the reasons we have such a hard time as Christians admitting to our other Christian friends how spiritually dry we really feel. Because we kind of know what the answer is going to be. Because maybe we've said it at some point, or maybe we've already heard it, and somebody will say, okay, well, you don't experience God anymore, huh? Hmm. Interesting. You don't sense God on your life anymore. You don't feel his presence. You're experiencing spiritual dryness. Have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all known sin? Have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you thanked God for all your many blessings? And so we expect people to respond to us. Surely you've done something wrong. You have missed something on your checklist. Obviously, you've messed up. Which is actually what Job's friends do to him in the book of Job. You have a righteous guy who suffers, loses everything, and uh, his friends are like, well, you've you've obviously messed up. You have to confess sin. He's like, no, I'm righteous. Like, I I haven't done anything to confess. Like, it's all all confessed out, right? And and then Job actually has to plead before God not to kill his friends for being so foolish. So, okay, it's a cautionary tale. Um, But here in the scriptures... This condition comes upon you. It just comes upon you. It will happen to you. It can happen as a result of doing sin, being wrong with God. Don't assume that for some reason, you know, when you're feeling this way, don't assume, well, it was like this in Psalm 42, so I must not have done anything wrong. Like, do some self-examination. But it can happen without sinning. It can just happen to you. In other words, this is inevitably an experience that can come to all of us. Right? Now, it's likely that you may do something wrong. In the case that you haven't, this psalm is also for you, right? So you see how it's applicable to all of us. Here it is. Why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know that the sense of spiritual dryness can come without sin? See, if you're a newer Christian, nobody kind of pulls you aside and tells you, oh, by the way, you've given your life to Christ, it kind of feels awesome. Um, there's going to be a day when it just kind of feels a little, like, Unreal, or you're not really going to experience the closeness of God for maybe a season in your life, right? Nobody says that, and then so you start freaking out, and and you're not prepared for it, because automatically in our culture we don't expect something like this to happen unless we do something wrong. We we somehow miss the formula. 
And this is actually a very moralistic view of God, as if God's like a slot machine. Like, if I put enough coins in, it's, I'm going I'm to get something back sooner or later. And so if God's slot machine God, all of a sudden, when we miss the formula, the slot machine's broken, we walk away from, we walk away from God. So it makes you start to doubt and think, well, maybe this was all just a nice dream. I had it all wrong. God isn't real or he's not good. And so if we don't learn to deal with the condition of God's strange absence, if we don't learn to expect it and know what to do with it, we end up derailed. So we have to be careful uh, with this. Okay? Some of us are really good at, some of you guys are great at working out, but if you get a cold, it just knocks you out, right? Because you don't take time to rest. You don't take time to get the fluids that you need. And so it ends up getting worse and worse and worse. We need to learn how to get good with the defensive disciplines. And so uh, it feels bad when it happens, and then when we don't react the right way, it multiplies, it compounds, and it gets worse. And some of us go off the rails for years because this has happened to you. You had a season of spiritual dryness in your walk with God, you experienced it deeply, you didn't know where to go with it or how to assess it, and so you stayed away from God for years. said, forget him, he doesn't work. And it doesn't even usually begin as an intellectual doubt. It begins as an experiential doubt. I don't feel God, so therefore I can't believe in him. And pretty soon what we feel begins to determine what we believe. And we begin to determine in our minds that God is a cosmic letdown because of something we lack in our own experience. So we need to know how to deal with the condition, lest it take us out. Um, and the first thing that you need to do is you need to understand what are the causes? How does, it, how does it come on? What are some of the factors that are related to the condition? First thing that we see in verse 4, there's three things. First thing that we see in verse 4 is this. There's a disruption of community. The psalmist says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Verse 6, he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Now, here's what's going on. This is, this is by the way, this isn't David who writes a lot of the Psalms. This is one of the sons of Korah, uh, who's a choir master. In other words, this guy's a worship leader, right? This is like Josh and the band. Uh, and he's explaining, I don't really feel like God anymore. I used to lead everyone in the procession towards the temple with shouts of praise. I used to be among the multitude who would keep festival, the, the group reminders of mighty acts of God to save his people. I used to be there. And by the way, if you don't know the difference between Mount Mazar and the house of the Lord, it's a long ways, okay? So Jerusalem is down in the south in Judah, and Mount Mazar and Hermon are way up in the north. Uh, and so whatever's happening, the author, maybe he's been exiled, maybe he's been captured, maybe he's left on purpose. We don't know. Either way, he's a long ways off. He's disconnected. He's exiled from the community. He's in isolation. Now, there are spiritual disciplines that are individual disciplines. There's individual study. There's individual prayer. There's also communal study and communal prayer, communal worship, and both are important. But as Americans, we tend to orient ourselves and say, I'm spiritual, I'm fine on my own. I have my own journey. I'm, I don't need a church. I, ha- I have my own walk with God. Right? 
And so we isolate ourselves from community. But the psalmist says, no, I long for the feasts. I long for the days when I regularly worshipped with the people of God. And so with our over-focus on individualism in America and our neglect of community, we often default to a lone ranger faith. It's no wonder when all of a sudden things go wrong in our lives, we begin to doubt faith altogether because we're disconnected from the ones who can encourage us and move us along in our walk with God. And so this psalmist is experiencing deprivation of community. He's, he's missing the festive throng who celebrate before the Lord, and he's missing the Lord now because of it. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, um, makes a point about his, his mutual friendship with these two guys, Ronald and Charles. And they were great friends, deep friends, enjoyed getting together. And he says that when uh, Charles died, he found to his own surprise that he had, ra- rather than having more of Ronald, he had far less of him. Um, it wasn't now that Charles was dead, he had more of Ronald, he had less of Ronald, because, Lewis says, Charles brought something out of Ronald that he couldn't. Isn't that interesting? Here's the genius of what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying, look, no one individual is able to call out the whole person. It takes a group of people to truly know a person. You don't really know someone when you've only interacted one-on-one. So you know someone in the context of the relationships of a family, a community, a group, because we're relational beings at our core. And so the psalmist doesn't underestimate the importance of community, and neither should we. See, being busy or just kind of a private person will not stop isolation from community from leading to an experience of spiritual dryness. We need community to sustain a sense of God on our souls. Amen? All right, thank you. Disillusionment from the events of life is the second thing we see here. Disillusionment at the events of life. Look at verse 3. He's saying, okay, my tears are my food, day and night. Um, well, they, there's an accuser, there's an enemy here. They say to me all day long, where is your God? See, the enemies in the Psalms are often characters who are after the psalmist's life. David sometimes is writing these songs saying, they're out to kill me, I'm hiding in the wilderness, this is not great, right? He's lamenting the fact that somebody wants him dead. Here, the enemy in Psalm 42 and 43 is, a, is someone who's taunting the author. He's saying, where's your God? And it's starting to get to him. It's starting to get to his heart. Look at verse 9. He says, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Uh, And then later in Psalm 43, why have you rejected me? He's starting to let the enemy's taunts seep into his own heart. And so listening to the voice of the enemy and believing it would begin to derail us and start to to put a wedge between our sense of God and... uh, and his presence. Now there is, the Bible says, a very real and dangerous enemy. Peter says that he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And Jesus describes the character of Satan, the enemy, and he says, this is someone who has not come to give life, that's what he came to do, but Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does that so often through these accusations. And he does it through causing us to question the very goodness and presence of God. Steal and kill and destroy. Have you had an accusation steal your sense of joy? Have you had an anxiety that just steals your sense of joy? 
Right? You, you worry about something tomorrow and it ruins your joy for today. Yeah. Have you ever had, because of an accusation, have you ever had your peace totally hijacked and derailed because of an accusation that wasn't grounded in God's character or his truth? We know what this is like. And so um, we, we tend not to ask these questions like, where's God when everything's going according to plan, right? We, when we have our little ducks in a row and everything's marching according to plan, we tend to just kind of say, God, I'm doing fine on my own. Thank you very much. But once things start to get knocked out of line, we go, God, what in the world are you doing? Right? What's your problem? And so rather than assuming that we actually live in a fallen world, we kind of think, I live in a world where I should be in control. So, God, why are you thwarting me? And we, we have problems with this. But what's happening in the psalmist's life is that things are not working out according to his view of what a good God should be allowing to happen to him. And so the question isn't just from, without, with, from the outside, it's now a question from within. He's starting to ask himself, why have you forgotten me? And it's very natural to act this way and react this way when things happen, when life happens, when life derails us. And it gives us a cause to question God's goodness and his presence because things are just too difficult to understand. Um, I read someone this week who said, when God becomes inscrutable, that is, when his ways don't make sense, we become most vulnerable, right? Like we become vulnerable to accusation and attack when we're like, I can't make sense of God. I can't make sense of a good God in this situation. And so we become vulnerable to accusation and attack. And, um, and so m- maybe you've just committed your life to Christ and things have like kind of fallen apart for you. Like, and this is, this is always a trying time. You're like, I, I gave my life to Jesus. Things seem to be on the up. Everybody who is a Christian seems to act like life is just wonderful and perky and great, uh, but then all of a sudden my life falls apart. And uh, I gave my life to Christ and then everything starts to crumble. And we, we usually never stop and think, wow, what if my life had fallen apart and I hadn't had Christ? What we usually do is we go, God, why did you allow that? Right? And so there's this, there's disruption of community, there's disillusionment at the events of life. And then third thing we see is deprivation, physical deprivation. Deprivation. He says, my tears have been food all night and day. Okay, like, that means this guy's not eating very well. Okay, of course it's figurative language, but he's essentially saying, I'm weeping and I'm not eating. I don't have appetite. And he's also saying he's not sleeping. Okay, because he's weeping all night and all day. And so when you're not sleeping and you're not eating, what begins to happen to your mind? Does it go good for you? I think about how I do when I go a few hours without a snack. Like, like my yogurt this morning didn't cover me. Like, I'm, I got up this morning and I'm like, I'm going to fall over unless I lean on that table. Like, I'm grumpy. So what do we do when we're not sleeping, when we're not eating, when our bodies are off kilter? When there's something going on with our bodies? You see, you're never going to be able to deal with the condition if you ignore that there's a physical aspect of it. See, there's certainly other factors that contribute to our sense of spiritual dryness, but of course the physical factors into it too. See, we have to understand that the biblical picture of people is that they're whole, that they're integrated, that life and all of the parts of our life work together as a whole. And so not only in the American mindset are we individualistic, we tend to be dualistic, which means we tend to pit the spiritual against the physical. And we kind of pull those two things apart and say that they're really isolated from each other. And uh, 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his great book, Spiritual Depression, makes the very important point that they are linked together. There are people who will say to you, your problem is physical, so take a pill. There are people who will say to you only that your problem is moral, so toughen up, buck up, get over it. And then there are people who will say, your, your problem is it's all psychological. We just need to listen to you and to support you. And the Bible is saying, no, it's an integrated whole. Yes, you need to make sure you're healthy. Get some sleep, get some food. We also need you to have friends who support you and listen to you. But you also need truth and you need the gospel. You need the spirit of God to help make you whole. So all of these things are involved. And one of the things that this says to us is that the Bible is far more balanced, far more integrated than our culture, which is far more reductionistic. Right? Our culture is actually the one that's reductionistic and, and minimizes problems down uh, and the Bible is actually saying, no, it's actually a very whole, integrated kind of thing. So, what are the cures? We know the condition, we know some of the causes, but what, how do you deal with it? What are some of the cures? Um, the author does four things to help us know how to deal with this in a helpful way. Um, the f- four of these, and then I'll, I'll slow down and work, work through them. The, first, he pours out his soul. Second, he analyzes his hopes. Third, he remembers the grace of God. And finally, he learns how to preach to himself. The first thing is this. He, he pours out his soul. Now, that is actually the entirety of the whole two psalms. You see, uh, what's kind of ironic about this is you have a psalm that's saying, Where are you, God? I don't feel like you're here. Um, I don't sense you at worship. I don't sense you in prayer. I don't sense you in scripture. And yet, the whole psalm, while declaring how much he doesn't feel God's nearness, is an exercise in a long, powerful prayer and meditation. See, he's, he's, that's the irony of the whole thing. He's pouring out his heart and he's saying, I don't feel like you're here. And yet he's going to the one who he misses. So it means something for us. It means this. If you're not, if you're here and you're like, I don't get anything out of worship in church. You know what? Keep coming. Keep at it. If you're here and you're like, I don't get anything from prayer. Don't miss prayer. If you get nothing from scripture reading, don't miss it. You see, we tend to pull back and go, well, it didn't work. So I quit. Which is a very American thing to say. It's all about me and what I want right now. Um, John Newton says this. If you're getting nothing from going to the throne of grace, I can assure you that nothing will come from staying away from it. If you're getting nothing from going to the throne of grace, I guarantee you will get nothing from staying away from it. So if nothing else, friends, talk to the God you miss. Pour out your heart to the one who's absent That's what the psalmist does. The second thing, so not only does he pour out his heart, he begins to analyze his heart. He analyzes his hopes. There's this repeated phrase throughout the whole thing. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Why are you disquieted? Hope in God. Now, is this a rhetorical question? Do you think the author is just like, kind of just throwing that out there, or do you think he's really looking for information? I think he's looking for information. I think this is an act of self-examination on some level. Now, we tend to do life preoccupied, right? Where we kind of, to be preoccupied means that we are occupied with the next thing before we get there. That's, right? That's what that means. And so we go through life going from next thing, to, from this thing to the next thing to the next thing, never really stopping and examining, how am I doing in the present? How did I treat that person a minute ago? Why did I act like that? Why did I say that? Why didn't I say something? And we, we tend not to be very self-reflective because we're very much in the next and very rarely in the now. And yet, the, this author of Psalm 42 and 43 stops and he pauses and he says, why? Why 
am I like this right now? And he's looking into himself. So not only does he pour himself out, he pours out his heart, he begins to analyze what's coming out of his heart. And he says, this is important, okay? Because what he does is he looks at his hopes, which is a very important thing. So sometimes you can have spiritual dryness without sinning, necessarily. But oftentimes, spiritual dryness is a function of where our hope is aimed. Where are the places that I'm anchoring my security and my significance into? Where are the places where I'm anchoring my ultimate sense of hope into? And spiritual dryness is an opportune time to examine what is it that I really long for and hope for. Because sometimes what God reveals is we have these inordinate loves. We have hopes out of whack, moving away from our real and ultimate hope, which is God. In Psalm 3, uh, David is pouring out his heart. And he's talking about um, one of the most painful moments of his life where his son that he loved pulled a a coup. He's trying to take over the the kingdom. He wants to kill his dad and take over the kingdom. And and so there were two things that David had loved uh, supremely. He had anchored his glory in the love of his son and family and the love and acclaim of his people. And he lost both of them in a day. And he says in verse 3 of Psalm 3, You are my shield and my glory and the lifter of my head to God. I say, my son used to be my glory. He was the one who was going to be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. There would be a son on the throne, and wow, that would be amazing. Or, uh, I've lost the acclaim of my people. Now he says, you know where I'm going to anchor my glory and my hope? I'm going to shift it now to you. And so what we find in Psalm 42 is that the psalmist examines his own hopes. And and we need to do the same thing. We need to relocate and shift our hopes and say, am I really anchoring it and how this person feels about me? Am I really anchoring my hope and my performance at work? Am I really anchoring my hope and how my kids are behaving? Where am I locating my hope? And sometimes that sense of spiritual dryness, I think, is even designed by God. I, this is Matt. This is my opinion. I think God sometimes says, I'm going to let you feel the dryness of your hopes so you can realize that your deepest longing is me, that your deepest hope is me. I'm going to go missing for a little bit so that you can realize, oh, I long for God because I don't sense him and I long for him. Now, it's far better to wake up realizing you desperately need water than to go on dehydrated thinking you're fine. Third thing uh, the psalmist does to, to cure the condition is he, he remembers the loving mercy of God. Verse 8, he says this. He says, By day, the Lord commands his hesed. This is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's a steadfast love. It's this loving, loyal kind of love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. See, he, he pours out his heart and he analyzes it. And now he starts thinking about God. What's he like? Like, what's God really like? How is he characterized? Oh, he's characterized by steadfast love. He's not the kind of God who just acts on a whim. He's the kind of God who anchors all of his action and his hesed, his steadfast love towards his people, his loving loyalty to his, his covenant with his people. And so he starts thinking about God. He starts thinking about his grace. He starts thinking about his redemptive work in the story that God's been telling and been acting out. And he turns to the grace of God and it becomes a song to him at night. And when you begin to remember the character and acts of God in your life, 
You pour out your heart, you analyze it, and then you start looking at God. What's He really like? And it turns your sense of self-pity into an opportunity to worship because you realize that He loves you better than you're capable of loving you. And fourthly, the last thing, the last point this morning is this. He learns how to preach to himself. I think this is a profound thing. Um, he pours out his heart. He analyzes his hopes. He remembers God's steadfast love. Right? He's the kind of God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That, that steadfast love. He forgives sin, iniquity, transgression. And he maintains justice. That's the kind of God he is. But then he begins to apply it to himself. He, start, he stops listening to his heart and he starts talking to his heart. Do, do you know when to do that? Do you ever know when to tell yourself, okay, shut up. You've, you've had enough floor. It's time for me to talk to you, self. Right? Now, see, this isn't just listening endlessly. This isn't just toughen up. It's actually applying the gospel to yourself. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his famous sermon on this topic um, says this. He says, do you know what? When, when you go through one of these conditions, he's talking about spiritual dryness, he says, every morning you're going to get up and your heart's going to be talking to you. You can either spend the day listening to your soul or you can spend the day talking to, to your soul. It's up to you. And sometimes your soul's throwing you junk. Sometimes you aren't actually listening to truth. You aren't actually gleaning from reality. You're, you're just actually letting the accusation now get amplified by your own soul. And it's time to take yourself in hand and say, okay, listen up self. And, and to do preaching in a contextual way, you have to listen, right? You have to listen. What are the hopes and fears and strengths and weaknesses of a people? And then you kind of have to figure out how does the gospel apply to that people? And now you've got to do it with yourself. You've got to say, okay, what's going on in here? And you've done that as you poured your soul out, as you analyzed your, your, uh, your hopes. And then you take that loving mercy of God that you've grasped and remembered and you begin to preach it to yourself all day long. And you say, no. No, your fear is off base. No, your anxiety is rooted in nothing. No, stop listening to those voices and start listening to the gospel. And so you start preaching to yourself. And if you're a good preacher, then you'll end up with some sense of realism rooted in your faith. See, he lands not with, I do praise him. See, that's just denial of his problems. And he doesn't land with, I'll never praise him. That's despondency. He lands with, I shall again praise him. See, that's realistic faithfulness where he says, okay, I believe the gospel. I know I'll come home to God. I know I'll be in his presence. I know I'll be praising him. Okay, last point of the morning. How do you get there? How do you actually pull that off? How do you learn how to preach to your heart like that, like the psalmist does? Well, we have a resource that the psalmist didn't have. See, the times when you're most spiritually dry, the times that become the worst, when you really sense in your heart, I think God's maybe done with me. The times where you think to yourself, I'm too much of a failure, or my sin's gone too far and it's too overwhelming, or the times when you think, I feel my distance from God is too great to cross. He's not there, he's abandoned me. And the psalmist says, no, no. Hope in God, you'll again praise him. And how do you know? Listen to the psalm through the lens of the one who really endured thirst. Listen to the psalm through the one who said, I thirst. And when he said it, didn't get refreshed with water, but he got vinegar. 
Listen to the one who said, why have you forgotten me? Whose enemies really verbally taunted, where is your God? You see, Jesus Christ really experienced the loss of God. Jesus Christ really experienced what it meant to thirst, to be forgotten, forsaken, and be exiled. Why? First, Second Corinthians 5 says that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it was his life for ours. We would become truly embraced by God because Jesus had become truly exiled. You see, in spite of our failures, in spite of our sin, in spite of the weaknesses we have, Jesus went to the cross so rather than being abandoned, we would be embraced, made children and a part of his family. You see... God gave him what we deserve so that we can freely receive unconditionally what is his. He received exile so we can go home. And his resurrection is the victory over all of that where he says, you will be raised like me in victory over sin and death and the devil. So the result of preaching like this to yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself, remembering Christ and what he's done for you, believing that, is that you come out the other side of spiritual dryness, but you don't come out just recovering where you were. It's not like getting back to where you once were. You come out further down the path, more humble, more hope-filled, more trusting, and more durable in your faith, and because of that, far more able to be fruitful and effective. And so you see, friends, we come to the table now. We come to the one whose presence here today says, I thirsted so you could be satisfied. I gave my body so that you could be filled with all the fullness of God in your life through my spirit that I pour into your life. See, we come to the one who hungered for God in desolation so we could be filled. And so when you come this morning, would you receive the body and blood of Christ given for you? And as you do it, would you make it a way of preaching the gospel to yourself this morning? As you come, would you take the bread and the cup and would you take that as a way of saying to yourself, This is God present to me, for me, redeeming me, taking all of my sin and weakness and transforming me to become his righteousness. And to come and be nourished by the gospel, believing again that Christ has given his life for you and raised it so you might be justified, sent his spirit so you could live with him in communion and sharing in his mission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, we find that you are totally, utterly present to the church. And we see the depths that you would go to make yourself present to us through your blood and body. We thank you, Lord Jesus, not only for your presence, but for your empowerment to live life in your image, conform to your purposes for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.